What is the deal with the Cuyahoga County Board of Health? They're supposed to be working for us. People are desperate for information about where the coronavirus is and the people who have died from it. And the County Health Board acts like the Kremlin. Lunkheads. You know, it's bad when the city of Cleveland is more forthcoming, or at least more frequent, and they're paid with county tax dollars, the board is. Now, more on that in a minute. With life upended, we're trying to keep as much normalcy as possible, so we're starting today like we normally do, with just me and Laura, even if we're miles apart. I gotta say, with as much communicating as we're doing back and forth on Teams, with all the stories you're assigning, I don't really feel that distant. <laughs> I wish I could say I feel bad about that, but I don't. It's the biggest story any of us will ever be involved in, the story of a lifetime, and we owe it to the community to give it all we've got. And I've got to say, uh, just looking at the work in, in this week alone, I'm just awestruck by what, what you and the rest of the team are doing. So let's get started. Welcome to another episode of This Week in the CLE, the weekly podcast where the best reporters and editors in Ohio, the team at Cleveland.com, break down the news. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn, wired into co-host Laura Johnston, who seems to be loving not having to dress up every day as she works from home. You know, I did a poll on this. I think I'm the only person I know who's worn real clothes every day. Jeans and sweatshirts, but still. I kind of keep hoping that if I dress like it's a fun Saturday, then one day it'll feel like a fun Saturday. Yeah, someday. I'm really not loving this work thing. I miss you guys. We have about the most cohesive staff I've ever worked with, and part of that is because we see each other every day. Converting our open and freewheeling newsroom atmosphere into a online Microsoft Teams conversation just isn't cutting it for me. And when you're trying to cover the biggest story in generations, it's a special challenge. I had a video chat with my team yesterday, which was kind of fun. My kids made guest appearances. But yeah, working from home with this story creates a special kind of 24-7 nuttiness. It's not all downside, though. We've already learned a few things that will help us going forward. Our experience with subtext, our free text messages, man, it's just been tremendous. More than 10,000 people signed up in 10 days, and they have been giving us all sorts of great ideas and thoughts. We're having the conversation there that we had always hoped for with our online comments platform, which was so caustic, we finally shut it down. I've been really impressed by some of their observations and questions. They're thoughtful, um, they're nuanced, and then of course they become stories which get passed back to us. I feel like we're moving into the second phase of the public response though. The first phase was all of us getting used to the idea of giving up some freedoms to fight the virus and help save lives. The second phase is seeing some vigorous debate with a growing sentiment that the health of the economy is at least as important as the health of people. We have some basically arguing that it's worth letting some number of people die to protect the economy and the economic vitality of the majority. The argument is, is that if the economy fails, many more people will be seriously harmed than by the virus. Yeah, we should talk about that with the reporters and editors who are going to join us. It's a big thought kind of discussion with different points of view, one that I'm sure a lot of people are mulling over as we end our second week of shutdown. You were in the fortunate role last weekend of being the on-duty editor, so we had quite a few discussions on Sunday when Mike DeWine ordered everyone to stay home starting at the end of the day Monday. We'll be talking about all the stories you had rolling, but you did some stories on your own both Sunday and after, and one of the most interesting is one that continues to grow. It was a look at why Michigan has so many more cases than Ohio when we basically started seeing cases at the very same moment. 
This has been the story I'm getting the most emails about, and it's been rapidly shared on Facebook um, and all over the place, I think. Michigan, which has 10 million residents, has tripled the number of cases as Ohio, which has 11.7 million people. On Wednesday, the numbers were about almost 2,300 in Michigan versus 704 in Ohio, and that was 43 deaths in Michigan versus 10 in Ohio. The separation of the lines on the graph I plotted started diverging about March 19th. You know, we can't conclusively say why this is, although we do have some theories. What are they? Okay, so I want to debunk the first theory that a lot of emailers suggested, which is that Michigan is testing more. They were basing this on outdated data from the national site covidtracking.com. For more than a week, neither Michigan nor Ohio was releasing their total testing data, in Ohio at least because they had no idea the numbers from private hospitals and labs. Now we know that Ohio has done more than 14,700 tests. So I still don't know Michigan's numbers, but I don't think it's the testing. The second theory I'm hearing is Detroit is a much bigger international airport so that people could have come in from overseas with the virus and then spread it around. And the one that seems to have the most weight is that the Michigan primary election uh, was held on March 10th. That was the same day Michigan announced its first two cases of coronavirus. And a week later, their numbers began to skyrocket. Meanwhile, Ohio at the last minute canceled its primary on March 17th. Well, the other thing is, and I think New York could bear this out as well, DeWine was much faster on that dreaded curve we keep talking about to institute strategies to stop the spread of the virus. Michigan was behind us. And from what I've read, being even one day behind can greatly affect how fast you go up the curve. Or maybe it's just that Ohioans are healthier than the people up north. I'm sure Buckeye fans would take that position. But you're right. I did a whole timeline. It's online of the day-by-day restrictions. Uh, Michigan first uh, limited gatherings to 250 people. We switched right to 100. And we were about a day, a couple days faster on a lot of these restrictions, including the total shutdown. Um, They're not huge, but they might have made huge differences. Yeah, there was a modeling that I saw that showed one day had a profound effect. I do want to get back to the Cuyahoga County Health Board. It's a sore spot. At Cleveland.com, we take transparency pretty seriously. We fight for it all the time. We go to court for it. So when we get a publicly funded agency like this that is keeping information secret without reason, we go off on them, and we're going off on this one. I really think they're way out of line. Yeah, we are not fans of withholding public information. On Saturday, when the first Cuyahoga County death was announced, we only knew it was a 91-year-old man because the Ohio Department of Health Director, Dr. Amy Acton, told us during the Daily Statehouse briefing. When a second Cuyahoga resident died Tuesday, we got nothing. And they claim it's for privacy, but that's preposterous. My other problem is their refusal to tell us what cities have cases something that no end of our audience keeps asking for. Again, the claim is privacy, but let's face it, municipalities are big. Saying Orange Village has a case doesn't identify anyone. Here's the thing. They're a public agency. They work for us. We pay them, and they seem to have forgotten that. If the people they serve want them to provide more data, then they should just frigging do it and stop playing these stupid games. I agree. No one is asking them to violate HIPAA, but a one-year-old's death is very different from a 91-year-old's death, and we want to know that. The thing is, in general, this board gets very little public attention, so the secrecy rises to the surface only in a crisis. 
you know, character comes through in a crisis and they're lacking it. It's a shame that in the middle of the biggest health crisis in modern history, we have a health board that just doesn't want to serve its residents. Okay. So before we gather some others, let me ask, how are you doing? How are the kids faring? We all have different challenges, but I imagine having school-age kids at home while you're trying to work, fearing they're going to burst into the door as we record this podcast. I don't think people listening know just how hard you work. This all must be tough. Are you feeling the pressure? Are you coming up with tactics to cope? Um, I have made a rule that my kids absolutely cannot talk to me during our twice a day conference calls uh, with managers or while the governor and Amy Acton are giving their daily briefings. They come in and I am like, leave me alone. My daughter's really big at reading over my shoulder too. So who knows what she's picking up about ventilators. But uh, the good news is they're mainly sticking to their schedule. It just gets hard like around seven when we're trying to finish up stuff and they're desperate for attention because they really, really miss the socialization of school. Well, someday we'll get back to normal, but I have no idea what normal is a year from now. I don't think it'll look much like life was six months ago. I have no idea when this will end or what will be forever changed. I told you yesterday, but I am terrified that they are going to close the pool this summer. And that is my happy place. And the thing that's I'm, I'm looking forward to summer to get me through this really kind of tough spring. Well, you can always swim in the lake. There is That's the meme true. out there that says that swimming true. in the lake gives you all the immunity you need from the coronavirus. I hope you and everyone listening is finding ways to cope. We're all in this together. Speaking of together, it's time to add a couple of people to this podcast. Let's welcome politics editor Jane Cahoon and reporter Evan McDonald. Welcome to the podcast, Jane and Evan. How are you guys coping with week two of shelter in place? Well, I miss you guys, and I miss my other colleagues, and Laura, I miss seeing the great outfits that you wear every day, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I was a little down about this whole thing, so I, I did try, I moved my workspace upstairs right in front of a window where I can watch the dogs and the people go by, and that's that's made me feel a lot better, but hey, listen, I am not complaining because I'm lucky to be working during this crisis, and I'm thankful that none of my immediate family members are sick. Jane, I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, but my desk is right in front of the window in our office. And every time I see somebody go by that I know, I like pound on the glass, open the window. And yell <laughs> at them. I think I'm far enough away so they sort of can't see me I'm upstairs. How about you, Evan? I'm of the same mind as well. I'm uh, you know, I miss everyone in the office, but at the same time, I'm glad to be healthy. I'm glad that we were able to keep doing the work that we can do from home. And I'm a bit of a homebody anyway, so I, I'm, I'm coping with it. it. It does feel good that I feel like we are helping in this crisis. So, and I think people appreciate what we're doing and I am grateful that, that we can help. Um, but there's not much mystery about where we start today. Uh, we've been ordered to stay home. I'd like to say this came as a shocker, the idea of losing a portion of our personal liberties. And I was shocked as it started to happen, but we were all just waiting for that final decision on Sunday. Yeah, uh, Governor Mike DeWine and Dr. Amy Acton, the director of the Department of Health, had been pretty clear for nearly two weeks that the only way to stop this thing from overwhelming all of our hospitals was to just stop the spread by keeping people isolated. So they issued their stay-at-home order. 
There's a lot to unpack here, but first, let's talk a little bit about DeWine's decision-making. We had a story by Seth Richardson, who will be on this podcast later, asking whether everything DeWine did these last two weeks was from a playbook or whether he was making decisions on the fly. Now, what I mean is, did DeWine go step-by-step according to a plan, closing schools one day, restaurants another, before ultimately ordering us all to stay home? Did he not issue the stay-at-home order on day one because we would have found it so offensive? So he instead slowly leads us there. He told Cleveland.com's Hannah Drown yesterday or on Wednesday, no, but come on. (laughs) Well, the crisis communication experts that Seth talked to said it might not have been a playbook per se, but he definitely followed good principles of crisis communication. He's, he's calm and he was gently introducing us each, you know, to each new restriction day by day and stating the reasons for it at this structured news briefing that made everybody feel calm. And then gradually his suggestions turned into orders the schools, the the mass gatherings, the bars, the restaurants, and then finally everything else non-essential. I do think that people will study this for decades, and it'll be interesting to see how history treats the governor. As for the stay-at-home order, we're all still a little confused. The order is supposed to define essential businesses that can keep operating, but the list is so long that even after we all read it, we were like, wait, are landscapers allowed? What about bike shops? It just seems like every day this week, the governor and lieutenant governor, John Husted, have tried to clarify things because they're getting so many questions, but they just keep saying, read the order. It's really simple. Um, I don't I don't think it is. <laughs> right. I, I think what's a little more clear are, you know, what businesses are considered essential because a ton of them are listed in this order, like healthcare, government operations, grocery stores, pharmacies journalists, and uh, of course, gun shops and the lottery. Um, but what I think is is not as clear, you know, as you said, which businesses are, are not essential because it's, it's just not spelled out. With the gun shops and journalists, it seems the state really didn't want to face First and Second Amendment challenges. But DeWine did make clear that he does not consider abortions essential, correct? Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I would say he's he's being clear because okay. he's been evasive when when he's asked about this and actually this doesn't have to do with the stay at home order but it was the order prohibiting elective surgeries except for a few circumstances involving saving lives etc um but every time someone asks him about it he just refers them to the wording of the order um you know he doesn't come out and say they shouldn't be performing abortions however abortion rights supporters would say, you know, they clearly think he's using this to advance his anti-abortion agenda. All right. It's it's Chris's soapbox time. I've got to say that the confusion <laughs> we get one every episode, <laughs> you know, more than one. I've got the confusion on this is just dumb. Uh, I suspect DeWine is not being clear because he's hoping that the self-selection most people will do will be enough to stem the spread of the virus. But it's causing all sorts of confusion and anxiety in the community. And because it is confusing, lots and lots of people are still out there congregating, spreading the virus. Why not just list 
with with specificity what can be opened and closed and then set up an under uh, some kind of office under John Houston or somewhere to arbitrate any that are murky. I mean, DeWine took day by day, very clear steps to stop the virus from spreading. But when he got to the final one on Sunday, he didn't close the deal. And it's dumb. We were getting so many complaints from people employed by companies that stayed open that we did a call out. What we found was great confusion and a lot of complaints from folks that even if they were in essential businesses, that their employers weren't properly protecting them. It was a staggering number of people, right, Jane? Yeah, we I I think yeah, it was hundreds that It was over five hundred at yeah, the last right, right. Who said, you know, everything from you know, not keeping the place sanitary to, to making people work too close together, you name it. But on uh, Tuesday, Lieutenant Governor Houston stepped up during the briefing and said, you know, I want to add clarity to, to this. And but then he basically said what you said, <laughs> just read the order. <laughs> yeah, I was all excited when he said, I want to add some clarity to it. And then he did nothing to clarify it. He made it murky. I've kind of wondered from the start whether there is a line that DeWine is actually aiming for, a point at which the tactics to slow the spread of the virus become meaningful. So you, you get a huge return on closing the schools and shutting down sports and concerts. You get a good return on closing down restaurants. Just with that stuff, you've slowed the virus a good bit. You start to approach this line. Then you order people to stay home, figuring that if X percentage follow the rules, you're there. You don't need to have strict definitions or enforcement because most Ohioans are good and decent people who will do what you ask them to do and you get to the goal. Well, I don't know if DeWine is really that calculating about it, but he certainly is getting praise from all over the state and the country for how he's handled this. He's been on national news repeatedly, and um, he's been held out as the calm leader that the president is not. Um, back to what you said for a second, Chris. I, he keeps saying, repeating, you know, at the end of this, do you want to be selfish or selfless? So he is really trying to appeal to people's inner goodness. And it is a line that I have been using on my kids. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's working, but it's working on me. Um, the same goes, though, for health director Dr. Amy Acton. Reporter Robin Goyce had a story this week that described a Facebook fan page with 50,000 Amy Acton fans. She is going to have her own action figure by the time this is over. She is like superwoman who has six kids. It's amazing. Okay. Yes. I think we all agree. DeWine took bold, measured steps to keep Ohio safe. Amy Acton has used science to guide the decision-making, but we have to remember at cleveland.com, we're the watchdogs. So it's our job to point out where things go astray. And DeWine has slipped up, Jane. First, he bollocks the postponement of the election. That was chaos. We talked about it last week, but okay. All right. You get to make a mistake. No harm, no foul. But then he used his authority to kind of close down the abortion centers, which is pretty bogus. And he has allowed lotto sales to continue. How is that essential? All that does is draw largely vulnerable populations into stores where they can get sick. Finally, he caved to the Trump administration on releasing the daily numbers on unemployment claims, despite vowing, solemnly promising to tell us what he knows when he knows it. Well, the Lieutenant Governor Houston said he was frustrated by that guidance from the Trump administration, but they agreed to do it. Um, it is only for the daily numbers. They're still releasing weekly numbers, and 
you know, the ones that are coming out continue to look very bad, as Evan can tell you. Um, but the, according to reporting from the New York Times, the Trump administration, their motive is trying to calm the volatile markets. So they don't want it to look too bad. God forbid we give people information um, <laughs> that might scare them. Um, but let's talk about Acton, the one area where Ohio has seriously lagged other states, and this came up in the Ohio versus Michigan story, is in the reporting of negative tests. They stopped for a week until the demands of people for that information became overwhelming. And let's face it, we've said it before, and she keeps saying it, Ohio does not have the test kits it needs. Right. And that's fundamental, right? The health department's job is to track things like this so they can help prevent it. Because they were not prepared, they can't do that. Other states are doing way better. And look, that argument that the feds provided stuff to other states more so than Ohio so so why why where where was ohio what did the other states do that we didn't do it's pretty much a failure well let me explain their thinking chris and you know you'll probably uh, push back on this but they, they so <laughs> <laughs> the 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 state said they stopped reporting these numbers because it gave an inaccurate picture they they only had the negatives from their own in-house tests and at the time, the hospitals were ramping up their testing, so those numbers from the state w would look like they were dramatically underreporting the testing. So they, they were only getting positives from, from the other labs. So um, Dr. Acton did say this week that they were trying to improve that, and they, they worked with the Ohio Hospital Association. And in fact, on Wednesday, they reported a total number of tests that had been administered. It was over... 14,000. And by Thursday morning, they improved their grade on the COVID tracking site uh, from a D up to a B. Yeah. I, and look, I give Amy Acton full credit. When she sees a criticism, she, she doesn't do what the Cuyahoga County Health Board does, which is to fight it. She tries to do better. And, and I get it. She's in the most trying circumstances. She's a fantastic leader. Uh, and, I, and I think we should all salute how she is trying to overcome the challenges they face. I don't want this to come across like we think she's bad news. I think Ohio probably has one of the best health directors in the country. So you're going to be joining the fan club. <laughs> I, look, I'm a fan. I, 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 she's an impressive, very impressive person. And I think she has a very bright future. She's really kind of come. Look, heroes rise during crises. She's one of them. And there are T-shirts now that like, they, you know, not all heroes wear capes. And the um, I think Homage is selling them. So she's become like this big public figure in Ohio. Um, but let's get back to that DeWine Trump comparison. Jane, this week, the president took some shots at the tactics that DeWine and others are using to slow the virus because they're crippling the economy. And this then came up in the governor's briefing. Yeah, he was asked about this uh, because of what seemed like an obvious disconnect. The, the president's been talking about getting the economy roaring again and getting this all behind us in a couple of weeks, whereas DeWine has been talking about slowing the virus down and saving lives and that's been his emphasis. And but when he when he was pressed about it, he he insisted that they're mostly aligned when when they clearly just aren't. He he says they both want to get the economy going again. They share the same goal, but obviously their approach is really different. 
Um, Evan, the result of the governor's order is that a lot of people who are already anxious about this virus are confined to their homes most of the time. I think that's why we're all watching DeWine's briefing every day. You examine the psychological trauma of what's been happening. What did you learn? So one of the big things about this is that not only is it tough for people who suffer from depression or anxiety, but it's also tough for people who are just extroverts and they're stuck inside, often alone for such long periods of time. So there's a lot of ways, though, that people can stay connected to each other. And I spoke to a couple of sociologists and psychologists, and one of the things that they recommend is the use of these video chat or even audio chat type apps, like Zoom is the big one that's become popular recently. One University of Akron professor, she had a virtual dance party with more than 50 of her friends. And they say that, you know, video chat might be better. There's no real way to gauge this. But one of the reasons for that is that there is something, there's research that shows that smiling can be contagious. So if you can mm. phys- if you can see someone smile, it might brighten your own mood. And there's other things that people have recommended doing as well. Just uh, one of the big things is just keeping a routine. Get up every morning, make yourself breakfast, get dressed. That's a big one. Just to get yourself in the mindset of life continuing as normal. And the other big thing that everyone says is just go outside and take a walk. The governor's order does not prohibit you from going outside, taking a walk, going on a run. Just that little bit of fresh air will really help you through this crisis. I agree. Um, I do want to see say that I've been really impressed by some of the acts of solidarity and kindness that we're seeing. People chalking their sidewalks with inspirational messages, kids painting stained glass hearts on their front doors. I think some people are going out of their way to reach out to their neighbors. Um, and like I said, every time I see mine, I like step into the sunshine and wave at them because it makes me feel better. Um, but at Jane, at some point, people are going to lose it. DeWine's been really cagey about how long this might go on, right? Well, I don't know if cagey would be the word I would use, but but he signaled that, for instance, the schools might not reopen this year. You know, they, they waived the testing requirements already. The legislature did. And um, my son was very excited about that, <laughs> by the way. Third grade reading guarantee. <laughs> And he's also said that this thing probably is going to peak maybe early May. So how long we stay shut down is really up in the air now. And look, order or no order, while this virus is out there, and until we can test ourselves to know whether we've had it without symptoms, very few people are going back out into crowds. And if they open movie theaters tomorrow, who would go? Well, not me. I can tell you that much. (laughs) (laughs) Me neither. But that, that's one of the big things that we are taking a look at now as we come out of this stay-at-home order and as life starts to get back to normal is whether some of these things will just immediately go back the way they were. The movie theaters is a big one. You know, would people go to crowded bars? Even, even simple things that we take for granted in everyday life. Would you shake someone's hand when you see them? Would you give them a hug? Would you keep these social distancing measures up? And it's really unclear if things are just going to go immediately back the way they were before. So it's something that will be borne out over time. 
Yeah, I can't wait. I, I, that story, I'm looking forward to when you do it. I know it's taken some time to put together because you need a crystal ball. I've also read just about everything I can find on this virus, including its effects on the body. And I got to tell you, Evan, the piece you did on COVID and the lungs was the clearest, most accessible piece I've read and scariest. This virus really does things to the lungs we have not seen a lot of. Talk about that a little bit. So thanks. I appreciate that. But Basically, like like any virus, it will attach to the back of your throat or your nose and move down your respiratory system, and then it enters the lungs, where it develops into a pneumonia, uh, like a typical viral, viral pneumonia. But researchers are trying to figure out right now if this is a more aggressive type of virus for your lungs, and whether it has a greater chance of progressing to the really severe condition that's being associated with COVID, which is called acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. And that is a, a type of respiratory failure that carries a very high mortality rate. About a third of people who get that are likely to die. But wow. there was a Chinese, uh, there was a Chinese study from, I believe the university of Wuhan where they looked at 191 patients who had who had uh, COVID-19 and the vast, vast majority of them who developed ARDS ended up dying w much, much higher. Only 50 of the 54 patients who died had ARDS and only nine of the 137 who survived had the condition. So there's also other things they're looking at such as whether you can tell any sort of distinct pattern of scarring on your lungs. Uh, from an x-ray or a CAT scan. But the, the problem is that it's really hard right now for medical experts to take those sort of images because every time they have to take one, they need to fully clean and dis disinfect one of those machines. And especially with a CAT scan, it's just not a good use of resources where you're having to take that machine out of commission for a long time. So th there's just so much we don't know about this virus at the moment, but we're, we're doing our best to figure them out. Wow. So with that, that point with the ARDS, with the point of no return, it feels like um, once your lungs get that bad, the only way to keep you alive is with a ventilator, right? And that fills your weakened lungs with oxygen. You're in the state where lungs struggle to get oxygen from the air and these machines force oxygen into the lungs. But if you're on a ventilator too long, that's bad too. So you wrote about the ventilators, which are in short supply right now. What did you find? So... In Northeast Ohio, I spoke to our three biggest hospital systems, Metro Health, Cleveland Clinic, and University Hospitals. And combined, we have about a thousand of them. Uh, I also tried to get some numbers from the VA. They have not released their numbers yet. So the, the ventilators are in short supply. The headlines, headlines across the globe are saying that we are going to need far more ventilators than we currently have right now to deal with this crisis. So it's unclear how we're going to get more. There's been discussions about ramping up production. There's been discussions about converting other types of machines, uh, breathing machines into ventilators for this crisis. But at the moment, it's, it's one of the big unknowns moving forward in this crisis. And right. I think I was just going to say that Emily uh, Bamforth had a piece on 3D printing pieces of ventilators, but they still don't know where they're going to get all the motors. 
Okay, so we're coming to the end of this first segment, and we're going to end it with a bit of a bang. Let me set it up, and then I want to hear from you so I can argue with you. Everyone game? Yes. Sure. I just love to argue with you, Chris. Yes, yes you do. <laughs> so, so the debate emerged this week that basically pits the health of people, largely older people like me, against the health of the economy. The debate got co-opted by the polarizing forces that rule the airwaves anymore with people on the right arguing for the economy and people on the left wanting to save lives. That's unfortunate because there is a, a real debate here. And it's not the big economy in the, in the macro versus sickly people. It's the idea that if we cripple the economy to the point of a depression, we will hurt a lot of regular people and hurt the health of a lot of people who won't have the resources to get care. We never, as a nation, got to debate the tactics being used to fight the virus. But if we had, would we have stopped far shorter than Mike DeWine's of the world who, who were trying to prevent this? Would we have tried to both stem the virus and nurture the economy? What do you think? Should the health of the economy be part of this debate or should we only be worried about saving lives? Can I go first? Jane, go first. <laughs> Why is this being set up as a choice? I mean, I buy into the governor's argument that saving lives is tied in with saving the economy. If you reopen everything and, and put everybody back to work and let this virus spread freely, our health system is going to tank and many people are going to, more people are going to die and our economy will tank. So to me, that's, it's just not an option. Yeah, I don't know that. Oh, go ahead. I think one of the other points as well is the fact that we were just talking about, would we go back to normal? Would we reopen? Would we go to movie theaters? Would we go to bars? So it, it's kind of a false choice because if we reopen all these businesses, it's unclear how well they were going to, they are going to do if people are still scared to leave their homes until we have some sort of medication or vaccine for this coronavirus. Laura? I, I think Evan made a really good point. Jane's point's totally too. I mean, I don't think anyone looks at Italy, which didn't shut down the same way and think, oh, they've got a rollicking economy. I mean, I don't think they're, that if we didn't shut down, then things would be humming along. I think this was going to cripple us either way and that we really do need to look and try to save as many people as possible because you don't want to look back and think, okay, we could we could have got done more. We could have tried harder. Well, I, I, I do want to point out too that if, if we had been prepared for the testing the way other countries were, we'd be in a much better shape to try and do both, save the economy and save people. If you could do universal testing and know who has the antibodies and who doesn't, the people that have them, you could put back out into the workplace, move the economy along. The lack of that preparation, which really is a failure of our government, is part of what dooms us here. To protect everyone, we have to take the steps we take. I mean, the other point is one you're making, that, that the fallacy of the argument in favor of the economy presupposes that we could have kept the economy rolling. And the fact is, as, as you have pointed out, if this virus went raging through our community, the economy tanks no matter what we do. There's, you know, the Italy economy is in the tank um, in a big way. And, and that's kind of the, the, the uh, division we're seeing. I do think it's interesting that this has arisen. I, I said earlier that character is what 
arises in a crisis. And what you're seeing is people who are losing their fortunes, basically saying, let people die so I can keep mine. And man, that's, that's not a great side of the argument to be on. I'm glad you didn't disagree with anything we said, Chris. No, I, <laughs> I, I'm actually disagreeing with this, this argument that has arisen this week, because I don't think there's a lot right. of fact behind it. And, uh, and I'm sad, really, that it's taken such root. But, you know, we're a polarized nation. Well, don't you think a lot of it is rooted in misinformation, like the spring breaker who said, if I get Corona, I get Corona. People weren't thinking of the full picture. I, I think that's what happens if you have a myopic view. I also think it's just panic. I, I mean, look, we, we all face challenges in our lives and it's where you show what you're made of. And and panic is never the right response. You, you know, you always need to take a breath you know, it's like it's like if a, if a college university moves up the date, it's going to release its poll, leaving your reporters <laughs> only a couple of hours to get the stories done. We're you, take, you take a breath and you get it done. Right, Jane? Correct. I, I think we need to uh, listen to what Laura is telling her kids. The selfless versus selfish. <laughs> right. And uh, John Houston also made a good uh, remark at one of the briefings saying that, do you really want to be remembered for, you know, getting into a fight over toilet paper? <laughs> oh, agreed. Agreed. The toilet paper. I actually, I don't even, I haven't been to a store in a week to know if there's toilet paper back on the, on the shelves yet. <laughs> Um, anyway, great debate all. Thank you. Evan, we've got to cut you loose. We're bringing on Seth Richardson to join in the conversation. We have this brand new poll from Baldwin Wallace University packed with both eye-popping political findings and big numbers on the coronavirus. Well, thanks for having me on and stay safe, everyone. I hope we'll get to see each other in person soon enough. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Seth. Hi, thanks for having me. So we're recording this podcast just hours after the release of the Baldwin-Wallace Great Lakes Poll, the four-state poll conducted by the university's Community Research Institute. It's in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, states that decided the 2016 election. And Seth, this poll will have us talking for days. It's good news for President Donald Trump. Very good news for President Donald Trump. Um, you know, this is the first poll that we've really had in uh, uh, Ohio, really all four of these states that have the head to head matchups between uh, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. But uh, and, you know, he performed well in those. But I think maybe even better for him is that he's seen his approval ratings go up over this time. Um which is, you know, quite astonishing when you think about it. I, I'd kind of been operating under the uh, the opposite assumption, just given the kind of chaos that's going on. But, uh, you know, people really seem to be responding, uh, you know, fairly well to the president. I want to, you know, he's not getting quite glowing remarks or anything, but he's doing much better than he was. I was stunned by this, really. The poll was being done while, tr while Trump was basically flip-flopping all over the place on the coronavirus, really demonstrating the lack of leadership skills uh, that have been his hallmark, while America was seeing the opposite from people like Governor Mike DeWine. I mean, we, we really got a reminder in this crisis of what leadership is about the calm, decisive decision making. And, and he was all over the place. I mean, the videos that you can find where he just changes his opinion over and over again, he actually called it a hoax at one point. The economy had not fully tanked when this poll was going on. But still, given how Trump 
did with the coronavirus and the fact that he was behind any Democrat six weeks ago, I was stunned to see him so high up. Yeah, people seem to be happy with his response to coronavirus, um, which is kind of, you know, it's it, it's strange because, you know, I, I watch the uh, I watch Governor DeWine's daily briefings. And then usually right after that, I watch the president's briefings. And, you know, there's there's a very stark contrast between the two. And people in this poll, uh, you know, I think we'll we'll talk about DeWine here in a little bit. But, um, you know, seeing the president's approval on the response to coronavirus get, you know, 60 percent like he's I don't know if anybody uh, since he's been elected has responded to anything that he has done to that kind of magnitude. But we're talking, you know, across uh, it was a little more partisan, but, you know, basically across all four states, he's looking at, you know, 60 percent of people who approve of his response to coronavirus right now. And. And that's going to be big going forward because the one of the biggest knocks against the president from Democrats was uh, they didn't think he would be able to respond to a crisis. Um, and I, I, I guess he I don't want to say he's necessarily proven anybody wrong or right or anything, because this is still this is going to go on for another, you know, month or two months or however long it's going to go on. Um, but 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 it is, you know, telling. Well, they might have been approving on Trump's response, but the other findings in this poll that are dramatic have to do with how the states have dealt with it. Think about it. People have been asked to relinquish personal freedoms to fight the coronavirus. And what, 85% of them approve? People just adore Mike DeWine. Yeah, basically across the board, people are agreeing with kind of these drastic measures that are being taken. Uh, You know, you're talking like upwards of 80, 85% who are agreeing with, you know, closing schools, 80, 85 who were agreeing with uh, restaurants closing down, Uh, less people agreeing with closing daycares, but you're still talking above 70% with just about everyone. Wow. The polls showed people are taking the coronavirus seriously, and I'm really glad that Baldwin Wallace got got to ask about it. Yeah, they pretty much rewrote a big part of the survey just before it went out. We work with Baldwin Wallace a lot. I think they're pretty great. Lauren Copeland reached out to ask whether we thought the virus should be a part of the poll, and we chatted a bit about the the big topics, and I'm glad they included it. Yeah, and and the poll showed that there's a lot of concern out there. Uh, An overwhelming number of people say they they fear the worst is yet to come with this virus. Um, 65 to 73 percent, depending on the state, felt that way. Uh, The good thing is that about 80 percent of them said they had changed their daily routines either a little or a lot, staying home and avoiding contact with other people, washing their hands, canceling their travel plans, et cetera. Um, I do wonder if this poll is kind of a snapshot of this all being very new, because you do see people's fears kind of coming up in this, especially in regard to the economy uh, and their personal finances. Um, You know, there's some significant concern with everyone and people are staying home from work. We just saw this morning that unemployment, you know, shot through the roof. Uh, And I I think you might see that play out over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and I actually think that'll be worse next week because I keep hearing like the downtown hotels have just closed and and some other things. The other the other surprise in this was that people are even okay with losing their beloved sports, right, Seth? I, I was actually kind of I was very surprised by that because I'm you know you guys know I'm a very big sports fan. Uh, you know, went to Kansas City for the Super Bowl parade uh, when I got the job here. You know, I think I promised Jane that I wouldn't wear my Cubs World Series gear until. The season <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> so did you keep that promise though? Yeah, I did keep that promise. I wore it the day after the season was over. So. Oh, <laughs> I was gonna say I remember a Cubs jersey. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, people are you know voters in general are okay with this and. Uh, you know, sports is not exactly a um, a fandom that is known for its rational responses to a lot of things, right? Like I yell at the TV every Sunday when you know some guy drops a ball, which seems very inconsequential now. Um, <laughs> and and yeah, seeing you know just you know broad support for it, um, even canceling the NCAA tournament, which at the time you know people were saying, hey, maybe just postpone the tournament until May, June, or something like that. But uh, yeah, really, just you know widespread support for it and the poll went sport by sport correct uh yeah well uh, say for the nfl just because it's not football season but yeah uh nba and it's NHL. always football season <laughs> in Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> i feel the same way so you know some of the only sports news we're getting right now is nfl free agency but um yeah nfl mlb nhl everybody agreed or not everybody but you know 80 85 percent of people agreed with postponing those um about 80 percent people in all Four sports that they agreed with canceling the tournament. And, you know, the thing that's crazy about that, and I pointed it out in a story that I did, is that it's not like there was apathy among sports fans from these states, right? Like all of these all of these states had teams that were doing very well. I still um, feel bad for those UD kids. The Dayton. Yeah, the, yeah Dayton. Yeah. It's, it's it, that's yeah, it's a it's a shame. Well, the poll was about so much more than the coronavirus. Seth, let's talk about the issues. What was the hot issue in the poll six weeks ago, and what is it now? So healthcare is the, you know, um, I believe the top issue in uh, this one. And, um, you know, you look at the change from six weeks ago, and you see a really drastic change in one category, and that's national security. And six weeks ago, you know, we were on the brink of war with Iran, and you know, because 2020 is just, you know, decided to be the most <laughs> abnormal year ever. Um, you know, that has really kind of, you know, the national security, um, border security, those kinds of things, really cratered out and given way to healthcare, probably because people are worried about this virus that's spreading. Okay, what's second? Well, the economy was second. The, the, the poll did cover some of that time period where the businesses closed, the bars and restaurants, et cetera, and, and the stock market started going down. Uh, but it showed that, that more voters in each state said the economy had worsened over the past year than, than the ones that said it improved. And, and mo more voters in all four of those states thought the economy was more likely to get worse than better over the next year, which is which is interesting given the way they feel about Trump. Yeah. And that's a that's a tricky situation for the president right now, just because people uh, you know, people tend to vote with their pocketbooks, right? And um, I, I don't think right now it's necessarily hit them that hard. Um, but, you know, come a month from now when you're still not able to go to work, how is that going to play out is really the big question. Let's do the horse race stuff. Let's do it in in kind of a rapid fire fashion. Seth, Trump versus any Democrat in Ohio in the other three states. Uh, you know, Trump beats both Democrats in Ohio. Um, he does very well. I think he he beats Democrats in Michigan, or I'm sorry, in Pennsylvania as well. Excuse me. Um, you know, he really does uh, very well against Sanders in pretty much pretty much everywhere. Uh, wins in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Um, he does lose to both Democrats in 
Michigan. Um, and he's tied with uh, in a head-to-head matchup with Biden in Wisconsin. Well, do the numbers. Trump versus Biden state by state. I mean, how far is he ahead in Ohio? How far is he ahead in Pennsylvania? Yeah, they're all within the uh, margin of error, so they are fairly close, at least you know him and Biden. So you look at Ohio, and you've got Donald Trump at forty-seven percent, Joe Biden at forty-three percent. Uh, in Pennsylvania, you're you know Donald Trump at forty-seven percent, Joe Biden at forty-five percent. Which that that actually really surprised me there, just because anybody who's listened to Biden on the campaign trail knows that he likes to hype up his Pennsylvania roots, you know, coming from Scranton. Um, in Wisconsin, <laughs> he, you know, the, it's pretty much a dead heat, right? You've got 45% for Donald Trump, 45% for Joe Biden. And uh, Michigan is the state where Trump is performing the weakest, uh, 47% for Joe Biden and 42% for Donald Trump. How about the same thing for Bernie Sanders? Yeah, this was a much rougher poll for uh, Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, he had, I think he'd kind of looked to the Midwest as uh, a sort of a a place where he could show some strength. Um, but, you know, this poll kind of takes away the argument that he's going to be, you know, uh, the better candidate on the ballot here. Um, in Ohio, you know, Donald Trump leads 47 to 41. In uh, Pennsylvania, Trump leads 48 to 42. Uh, in Wisconsin, Donald Trump wins 46 to 42. Uh, Bernie Sanders does win in Michigan, but it is by a smaller margin than Biden wins. Um, Bernie Sanders wins 45 to 42. Okay. Can you break it down by gender? Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things about this poll is we we have seen kind of some, you know, gender disparity in, um, w- you know, who is supporting which candidate. But the the splits were fairly even this time around from looking at it um, that that really kind of shocked me. Um, there wasn't this, you know, we've, we've seen men, you know, obviously uh, men have been more likely to vote for Trump, women more likely to vote for the Democrat, um, you know, depending on who's being polled. But in, in this time around, it was kind of being roughly even across the board. There are some, there's, there are some differences. Um, uh, yeah, let me pull up here real quick. Seth, let me interrupt. In the last poll, the most dramatic finding I thought was how strong a force women were in coming out against Trump. Are you saying that that has largely evaporated? I think it's softened quite a bit, yeah. Um, and that might just be because of dissatisfaction with the Democratic candidates as uh, you know, at mm. large, um, which you know we've seen play out in some of the other numbers as well. Uh, you, I mean, you did see men slightly more likely to vote for Trump in this poll than women, but it wasn't like the you know the the wide disparity that we saw in the January poll. Well, let, let me ask you this. Back in January, there were still a lot of women in the race. I was just thinking that. Do you think women are are getting kind of dejected that they're being left out again? And and which leads me to my next question, I guess. Um, The poll asked about vice presidential candidates. What did it show? Uh, yeah, I can 100% buy, you know, women feeling dejected from this race um, because, you know, it, the Democrats talked about this being the most diverse, you know, primary field in, you know, the the history of the Democratic Party. And then you end up with two old white guys, right, uh, <laughs> as the final two nominees. So, yeah, I, I can absolutely see there being just some some dissatisfaction, you know, people thinking, oh, this time's different. And, um, you know, maybe now it's not going to happen. Uh, but, yeah, women, um, you know, the, one of the questions that uh, that was interesting was 
uh, you know, if if it was important for a woman to be uh, the vice presidential uh, running mate for the Democratic Party. And you have more than half of respondents, Democratic respondents saying across all four states that, yeah, it's either somewhat important or very important. And I think one other thing I would add to that is, you know, the other category is not very important, but that does sort of imply that there, there is some importance to it. And even in that category, you're talking about 30, you know, 25, 30 percent just, you know, across just about everywhere. So only about 15 percent of the Democratic Party says that it's not at all important for uh, whoever the nominee is to select a woman for their vice presidential running mate. All right. Hey, I want to I want to go back to something we talked about earlier with when Evan McDonald was on the podcast. We were talking about the story you did about the hundreds and hundreds of people we heard from that have concerns about their employers. Why is my employer open? They're not essential or my employer's not doing anything to keep me safe. Um, uh, I was surprised that we got as many responses as we did. We had been hearing from a lot of people through subtext and other ways, but when we did the call out to hear from more than 500 people, uh, what, what struck you about what you were hearing from them? I think what struck me the most is, you know, you're you're always going to have kind of violations, uh, you know, health violations or whatever, workplace violations, right? I think the thing that struck me the most from looking through all those responses was just how many industries it was stretched across this time, right? Because it was everywhere. It wasn't just like a restaurant, you know, a bunch of restaurants were doing it or a bunch of factories were doing it or a bunch of retail places were doing it. It was, it was across the spectrum. Um, and I mean, it really is the, I guess the thing that's really the most shocking to me about it. Okay. So my dad was a small business owner. Um, and I, you know, I think about how much, you know, we really like try, you know, followed code very strictly. And this isn't just code. This is a, an order from the governor that is literally about people's safety. And you still have businesses who, you know, are potentially being very cavalier about it. And I think that's a significant danger and because the health, I mean, the health officials are telling us that and to just not adhere to those rules is kind of baffling. And Jane, I, th this has come up repeatedly in the, in the briefings with the governor where the reporters, we're not the only ones hearing this, this is being heard across the state. And, and in, in one of the more recent briefings, the governor did say that if people complain there'll be some enforcement that if they call and, and do it. But Amy Acton quickly stood up and said, hey, look, the health department doesn't really want to spend time enforcing the order. We want you to follow the order because we're trying to do all these other things to, to stem this. Do, do we think that ultimately we'll see what's happening in other states where where police or sheriffs or somebody will start going to the employers and saying, hey, damn it, you don't have distancing here. You're putting your workers into danger. I think it's possible. I, I think we've already seen some of that. Um, did, I, I believe they said that there was one company that they were already going after. I think, Seth, you were trying to find out a little bit more about that. Yeah, I haven't, uh, haven't been able to get a name yet, but uh, it does look like some kind of enforcement is coming from the state. Um, I, I could very well see a scenario where, you know, maybe not the state health department, but where local health departments are going in and... Well, if it happens in Cuyahoga, we'll never know about it. <laughs> um, but like one more thing that is kind of baffling about, you know, a business deciding that they're going to defy this order is, all right, let's, let's, you know, take, let's forget about the safety and the legality and all that. 
you know, what kind of risk are you taking at a time right now where you can have your business name, business's name be associated with breaking these rules? That just seems like you're, you know, you're trying to end your business at this point. I, I don't know. It, it, it's baffling. I, I did think that John Houston's line that the first place the employee should go is to the employer and say, you should make me safe. I got the sense from, I've gotten the sense from all of the comments we've gotten that these employees don't believe their employers are being responsive, that they really feel they need external pressure brought to bear or else they're going to continue to be in danger. These are people that are worried about getting sick and bringing the virus home to their families because their employers won't do the right thing. And man, there's a lot of them. So I think what the lieutenant governor was, you know, I don't want to put words in his mouth or anything like that, but I think what he was saying is, hey, bring it up with your employer. The people who talk to us are kind of the step beyond that then, right? But there are a lot of them. There were so many of them. To get, you know, more than 500 responses in only a couple of days is, you know, mind-boggling. And I mean, maybe, you know, I guess maybe the easy way to explain it away is, oh, well, we didn't have time to properly prep. We're doing it now, right? Well, that's not what you know the health officials and the governor were saying right they were saying hey this needs to be done now and the other thing is the lieutenant governor made it very clear that you need to adhere by this because you're not only going to have to adhere by this for one month you're probably going to have to adhere by these rules for three four six months however long this really takes right it's well, yeah it's, I- it's mind-boggling in a sense I, I really do hope that people do the right thing uh, because a lot of those emails feel pretty desperate. Um, I could go on talking about this forever. We will continue to talk about it, uh, but great conversation. Thank you guys so much for being here. Thanks, yeah, for, thanks having for having us. me. I'm not sure why, Laura, but we more than doubled the number of people who listened last week in just two days. Because we're so entertaining and people have nothing else to do. Um, just kidding. I think people are looking for reliable discussion about this crisis. And they have know that we have a team that knows what it's talking about. You have a column going up on Saturday, I think, that talks about the big jump in this audience in these last couple of weeks. Yeah, last Sunday, we nearly quintupled our audience from the same Sunday a year earlier. We've never seen anything like that. Look, this is a crisis. And in a crisis, people turn to what they trust. People trust Cleveland.com. So what stood out to you this week? Honestly, the poll. I do not understand how people can wholeheartedly approve of both Trump and DeWine's handling of the coronavirus crisis. They are diametrically opposed. I should say my highlight or my low light is the discussion about the bozos keeping their information secret at the County Board of Health. But for me, the most intriguing part of our discussion today and really the most interesting discussion of the week is about the economy versus the lives of people. That's not a discussion a strong nation should have. The people should always come first. We say character shows in a crisis. I've said it repeatedly today. And people who have seen their large parts of their wealth wiped out are showing their character. They're okay with people dying to preserve their wealth. I'm not. We need to do whatever we can to protect our fellow citizens. We can always rebuild wealth. We can't bring back the dead. Yeah, I think that debate is happening because we haven't reached the terrifying apex of this crisis yet. I mean, I don't think people in Italy are having this argument. It's always hypothetical until it hits someone you know. Yeah, you're right. That's that's the thing that the people arguing for the economy aren't doing. They're not imagining their moms or their aunts or other people close to them being on the front lines dying. I think if they did, they might come at this a little differently. 
That does it for perhaps the weightiest episode we will ever have of this podcast. We're all in this together. Together we'll survive it. Laura and I thank Jane, Evan, and Seth for their wisdom, and we thank you for spending some time with us. This week in the CLE has a bonus episode on Saturdays when we ask the big questions that linger from the news, and you can bet we will be asking about the Cuyahoga County Health Board this Saturday. We'll be back next week with another full episode. <laughs>